I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast in association with Advantage Go, enabling underwriters to increase the speed and accuracy of decision-making. Today's guest is a year and a half into a role running the best-performing major reinsurer of the past 15 years. Hanover Re has been a business that has managed to grow profitably in hard and soft markets alike, maintaining a lean structure and keeping underwriting and rigorous capital management to the fore. With a global market hardening in full swing, and one of the most important 1-1 renewals in decades to navigate, I asked Jean-Jacques Anchot to outline his plans for Hanover Re in a radically changing reinsurance landscape. Along the way, I found a charismatic leader who is looking to strike a balance between reinforcing Hanover's core strengths and underwriting culture, while at the same time gently pushing it to adapt and prepare for the future. I enjoyed my time with Jean-Jacques and the insights he gave into Hanover Re's strategy for 2021 and beyond, and I think you will too. Enjoy the podcast. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access, who have kindly supported this podcast. Rick, first, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. Prime Holdings is a holding company, and we're excited to expand our claims TPA service, Claims Direct Access, which is the exclusive claims manager for Prime Insurance Company and has managed claims for Lloyd's since 1995 when we've been on the Lloyd's line slip as a risk taker. So we plan on coming over to London and uh, hopefully providing our partners more flexibility where we can issue prime paper where necessary. We can support and take risk on the Lloyd's line slip and offer our superior claim service, which is evidenced by Prime's own loss ratio for the past 10 years. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting's a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. So again, we're excited to bring superior claim service to the Lloyd's marketplace and offer the ability to share risk alongside them as we manage the claims. Well, thanks so much, Rick. Um, I'll make sure there are all the right links in the podcast notes and let's get on with the podcast. Jean-Jacques, thank you so much for taking a bit of time out of this, I'm sure, a very busy renewal season. I thought we'd just start with something easy because obviously you're new in the job, relatively new. Hanover Re of the past 15 years has been the most successful reinsurer that I've had the privilege of writing about in that period, grown hugely, but maintained profitability all that time. What's been the secret of that success? And what's your personal vision for Hanover to keep that going? No, thank you for the question and pleasure to, to be part of that podcast. It's clear that uh, the Hanover Restory has been quite impressive and I've followed it uh, as a competitor for many years. And, you know, there are no secrets. I think the key to success is a mix of cultural aspects and business model aspects. I think the cultural aspects are the fact that we're very much focused on underwriting discipline, underwriting consistency, and the DNA of the underwriting company is pervasive. It's very much part of what we do and how we do it. But I think we try to link it as much as possible to a keen focus on clients and client needs and, and being attentive to the, the expectations and demands of our customers. So that blend of uh, underwriting culture and client focus has been one of the keys to success over the years. It's clear that the, the operating model is leaner than in many other cases in the industry and that has helped us keep the, the cost base 
at a decent level. We watch our costs. We deploy you know, resources and invest whenever appropriate, when it fits the business case. But we remain very focused. We try to remain very lean. And under lean, I also mean the decision-making, trying to be fast, thorough, but fast, and not incur unnecessary costs. So I think the lean model has helped tremendously to the success story. The last point I'd mention is capital management. I think the team has been outstanding in managing capital efficiency, uh, looking for ways to be more uh, more efficient, uh, realizing diversification across uh, the portfolio, but also use the retrocession market. Over time, this has been particularly supportive of our performance in the last few years, of course, but we hope uh, going forward that we can also manage to create a very, very good profit for our retrocession now. But clearly, retrocession has supported the performance recently, given the high net load in particular. So that would be really the blend of uh, culture and uh, business model, which continues to carry the outperformance for Hanover Re. And I think you know, the vision for the future is very much to try to take all these strengths with us and continue to fine-tune on where we're good at. I think uh, that client-centricity aspect is one I'm looking at very carefully. And how can we continue to be relevant to our customers as they grow, as they expand? I think here we need to add key account management to the skill set. And that's a discussion we're having I also think we need to embrace innovation and digitalization of the industry and understand how we can add value to uh, to our customers, but also to new entrants into the industry. And lastly, I think we need to continue to invest into the Asia-Pacific region as an area where we've been growing, but where we need to add resources and strengthen our footprint locally. The vision is, um, you know, is very much a balancing act between leveraging the strength of that culture and unique model and investing into the future. So to summarize that, it's really a lot of consistency. You're not really coming with any revolutionary plans. You're just going to keep things going almost the way they are, but continue to evolve. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I'm always joking about it and saying if people who don't want any change and people who want a lot of change are both frustrated, then the strategy has been implemented uh, the right <laughs> way. I'm joking about it, but, but there is some truth behind it, is that it, it's a strategy of continuous improvement. And to those who are in a hurry, that might seem a bit too slow. For those who, who want to keep the status quo, it might uh, be perceived as too fast. I think we need to continue at a good pace. The industry is changing quite significantly. Our clients are changing. Their needs are uh, evolving. And uh, we cannot stand still. We need to adapt the model to complement uh, the skill set. So there is a lot to do, uh, but it's not a revolution. It's a balancing act. That's a fair statement. Could we go more deeply into the strategy of Hanoverie today, going into this 1-1 renewal, particularly in this particularly interesting market that we have in 2020, 2021? I think, you know, we're, of course, looking into 2021 on the PNC side in particular, uh, with a keen interest on rate adequacy. So there's a lot of tactics in addition to the strategy. I think we're looking at uh, an environment uh, which is a perfect storm. We have long-term trends uh, like climate change, which clearly drives the frequency and severity of NATCAT events. We have the interest rate environment, which is also you know, here to stay. 
And we have COVID coming into the mix. So a lot of drivers for change have resulted in the market, which is hardening, which is firming. And our priority is very much to work with our customers to make sure that we have the right terms and conditions, that the, the prices can correct towards the increasing exposure, uh, that we look at wordings more carefully, but also in alignment with our clients. That's clearly important that uh, prices and terms are adjusted in the primary space as well as in the reinsurance space. So it's a joint effort. And we're trying to work with our clients uh, in a partnership spirit. Obviously, the view coming from reinsurers publicly is that rates have not been adequate overall and need to rise. But a business like Hanover, for example, you could probably pick and choose a little bit. Can you justify rate rises when, in fact, you've, of course, been underwriting profitably throughout the cycle? Can you sit here and say we need rates to increase? Whether or not you push them hard yourselves, others are pushing rate, probably because they need to. How far do you think it's going to go? Yeah, no, I think you know it's a fair challenge, uh, given the fact that we comparatively have been faring very well uh, across the cycles. But at the same time, you know, we see the impact of climate change, as I said, as a driver for change. There is increasing exposure. There is a trend which cannot be ignored. And, and the models tell us a clear story about uh, price adequacy. And I think that the market rates at this stage are, are not exactly in line with some of the increasing trends we're seeing generally. So I think that's one which needs to be addressed, as I said, with our customers. The price of risk is increasing. That's just a reality, and it needs to be reflected in the terms. I think you should not underestimate the fact that we are relying on retrocession coverage, as I said, and this needs to be taken into account. This is part of our capital management strategy, but it's important that over time, our business partners on the retrocession side can be um, retributed and get the rewards for the capital they invest in. So clearly, uh, we need to watch that space. And there are some uh, lines of business which uh, clearly are uh, not uh, producing the expected returns. And independently from our overall performance, I think it's important to address these. The U.S. casualty would uh, certainly be uh, one example I think the UK motor market is uh, is not a, an easy one for reinsurers as another example. So I think we need to address these things jointly and um, and have the correct rate. So generally, we fared well, but uh, it was also because of capital management, protection, a little bit of luck, and the diversification of our portfolio that, that would have driven the performance. But going forward... It's clear to me that generally rates must be adjusted to reflect the the increasing exposures we're having on our books. We need to talk about your retro buying strategy. This has been a very consistent feature of Hanover Reef throughout the last 15 to 20 years. When you're talking to cedents, are you going to be saying that you're passing on retro cost increases to your own customers? Is that really the mechanism by which this is happening? No, I don't think this is part of the conversation. This is really our own arrangements. And, and we, we chose consciously many years ago to go that route. You know, this, this is part of the capital mix. And whether you talk about, you know, having equity, capital or debt uh, or retrocession uh, should not be of prime concerns to our customers. And this is not uh, very much part of the conversation, to be frank. What is important is that uh, the expected returns are known to the business partners and uh, an open conversation on the risk we're taking on our books. And this is part of the experience. 
This is partly uh, primary pricing and terms, and then it's partly modeling assumptions where uh, we might have differences. But, but this is driving the discussion. The retro part is just an integral part of our um, cost of doing business. And our um, business partners understand that returns uh, must be um, adequate. So, so this is not uh, central to the discussion. And I'm presuming your retro partnerships have been very strategic and you've not been the sort of player that would jump in and jump out and be opportunistic in the way that you buy your retro if you see it as something that's fundamental and strategic. Is that correct? And therefore, I presume that you're, whilst the retro market is hardening, I presume that you're expecting not to be punished like some of the more opportunistic buyers would be. No, this is absolutely correct, and this reflects the philosophy we're taking as we conduct our own business. About 85% plus of our panelists year for year remain uh, part of the program, so we have a lot of loyalty, a lot of uh, business partners who have been with us for 10 or more years. And that's helping, of course, the negotiations because there is a multi-year dimension to it which makes it a bit insulated from the most heavy parts of the cycles, ups or downs. So clearly there is an adjustment of pricing, which uh, we acknowledge on the retro side, but it's not punitive as we speak, because that there is this long-term view. And I think that's the best way to put together a, a retro session program, that, that to really look for partners who want to work with you, over time. And I presume you didn't really chase that softening part of the retro cycle very hard yourselves. Perhaps you didn't avail yourself of some of that much cheaper capital that was available in the last four or five years, particularly. Now, clearly, you know, we look for quality, we look for counterparty risk uh, mitigation, we look for partners who are uh, here to stay. And uh, there's a little opportunist attitude in, in how we purchase the retro session. And it's not to say that, you know, we might have some opportunities short term for newcomers. But generally, this is a buying process which is well anchored into long term relationships. As regular listeners will know, the Gateway has been sharing insights from their incubator, where they bring together tech founders and insurers to create and de risk new product startups. In its recent chats, it banned words and phrases. But this time, it's going to celebrate one. The word the Gateway wants to celebrate this episode is naivety. Such a precious yet undervalued thing. Let me share two things that you don't encounter on a daily basis in business as usual, but the InsurTech Gateway sees every day. The first and most exciting is the discovery of emergent uninsured spaces. It's like the discovery of a new material, a new element on the periodic table. The second thing is the experts who navigate these emergent underinsured spaces. These individuals are definitely not insurance experts, nor do they profess to be. But they are the first generation of a new age of experts in fields we've never heard of, or maybe we have heard of, but we don't understand what they really mean. Who'd ever heard of an e-commerce aggregator, a crypto trader, or a cryogenics expert before 2010? And who could have imagined that these exotic disciplines could now be at the forefront of multi-billion dollar sectors? At the Gateway, they've learned to embrace the insurance naivety of these incredible leaders and can quickly tell if they're bonkers or brilliant. They help them shape these plans into insurable, investable, and impactful businesses. So if you can't find the time but want to learn how these new discoveries can shape your lines of business, there's another way. The Gateway. The place where insurance-naive but exceptionally brilliant founders will build the insurance books of the future. 
the ILS market, obviously, it's been through some difficulties. How is that holding up as a marketplace? Do you still find it a useful lever in your armory, in your capital management armory? Yes, I think uh, the ILS market continues to be, you know, uh, present. Uh, has been, of course, in 2020, a little bit of a blip because some of the capital has been trapped, particularly because of uh, NATCAT events. And um, this has created um, momentarily uh, reducing capacity. There were some surprise losses. There was some loss creep, as you've seen uh, earlier this year and last year. So this plays a role in the short term, but generally the ILS market is very strong, very much part of uh, what we do. We're uh, also working with partners on fronting on a collateralized basis, some reinsurance capacity, and this is uh, here to stay. This is a very important part of the market. It's geared to some uh, large extent towards um, NATCAT exposures, of course, more focused on uh, on North America, but uh, but it is diversifying. You see also some ILS coverage for mortality uh, exposures. There are interesting innovation in that place. And uh, for me, the ILS strategy has been working very well at uh, Hanover. It's a long-standing story, also related to partnerships and long-term endeavor to work together. So that works well. The ILS market is vibrant and is uh, here to stay in spite of the difficult environment, in spite of the short-term losses which uh, occurred in the past three to four years. It's just a market that's slowly maturing because it's still quite a young market. That's true, yeah, and uh, and of course you you have always have newcomers. Uh, this raises uh, a lot of interest. Uh, the reinsurance market is not a, a market uh, which has high barriers to entry, uh, as you well know. That means it's very vibrant. But, but the main players are consistent and uh, here to stay. Let's look to the market itself. Obviously, we're getting the hard or hardening market in, in one way or another. What's your view strategically of how long? you feel this hardening might last or need to go on for? You know, it's difficult to say, of course. It always depends on um, how significant uh, price corrections have been and how much capacity comes in at some stage. There is some capacity uh, which has come in from new players. There are some incumbents which uh, raise the capital to fund further growth. So clearly, this will play a role as well. My sense from the discussions we're having with many clients around the world is that uh, there is a common acknowledgement that the primary and reinsurance rating environment uh, will continue to be firm beyond 2021. And that plays in the equation when we negotiate some of the renewals, of course. There is an expectation that there is a correction over time. So my personal best estimate is that we're, we're going to see some further correction of rates beyond 2021. Do you think a lot of this is actually demand-led from large insurers wanting to buy more reinsurance than they did before? I think there is a combination of uh, you know demand from uh, many of our clients, uh, clearly, so that there is increasing capacities um, requested, but, but also the, um, the deployment of capacity from the incumbents is re, you know, very much linked to uh, expectations of returns. You know that uh, the reinsurance industry did not really produce the, the sort of ROE performance, uh, which is commensurate to the risk. And therefore, whereas there is 
ample capacity still in the market, believe it or not. That capacity will be deployed only if rate adequacy is secured, and that will discipline the market as well. So I see this as a combination of large demand, increasing demand from some of the buyers, and um, underwriting discipline and uh, cautious uh, deployment of capital. You mentioned about new capital, and I thought it would be a good moment to bring in this class of 2020 that we're seeing. I just wanted to ask you what you feel, what sort of opportunity they are stepping into. Is it a broad opportunity, a bit like we had in 2000, 2001, where we had ability to build diversified franchises, which is a lot of them are still around today? Or do you think it's something really focused, and in particular, one area? Obviously, we can see US specialty and ENS, for example, which is definitely you could identify as a specific area. Or do you think some of them will have a broad opportunity? I generally feel that the, the, the market terms, as I said, are here to stay for a little while. So the timing for these new players could not be better. And I see this as a broad-based uh, movement in the, the market dynamics. So, so my take on it is... Uh, as much as you know, some of the specialty lines will require new capacity and an immediate opportunity for many of these uh, new players, this will be broader based and it's an opportunity for uh, newcomers to establish themselves across multiple lines of business. So clearly an excellent timing for some uh, players to, to enter the market. Presumably you don't always want to welcome competitors with open arms, but you presume that it, sometimes it is useful to be able to present that capacity and solve clients' problems. Do you welcome that capacity in some ways as an addition to be able to be a meaningful solution to client problems? Yeah, no, I think so. I think that there is increasing demand. There's a growing uh, you know, request for capital anyway. And it's good to see competition with people coming with new ideas. I think in reinsurance, you really need to have a differentiated value proposition. If, if you don't, uh, you won't survive for too long and we, you will be stuck into uh, the more commoditized part of the market. So it's adding new ideas, innovation. It can also help push the frontiers of insurability. So competition is good. The issue for us is not about competition. The issue is, you know, how can we steadily grow our book in a diversified way and we don't um, feel that competition from newcomers. On the opposite, we feel there's a, a good flight to quality trend which continues, which has been accelerated in 2020. And as a matter of fact, we have more requests from uh, our business partners than capacity to be entirely candid. So competition is good. It disciplines everyone. And I think the, the flight to quality, the fact that the buyers are in for long-term relationship remains important. So growth is not the prime concern for Hanover Re. Obviously, we're talking about new capital going into new businesses and new skins, sort of new wine into new skins. What about some of the new wine going into the old skins? This is incumbent insurers and reinsurers raising capital. Is your feeling that some of that capital raising has been more defensive to perhaps shore up balance sheets during a potentially difficult time? Or is it more to being aggressive to be able to attack a harder market and grow? I think there has been a bit of both, uh, to be frank, in the course of this year. The, you've seen some examples where you know there was a demonstration of financial strength and, and also um, a strong focus on making sure that um, given the uncertainties related to the COVID uh, pandemic, um, the balance sheet um, would uh, remain very strong and prepared for surprises. But we've also seen a number of examples where the uh, outlook was the prime driver for capital raise. And it's clear that uh, the expectation from a number of incumbents is that um, 
the rate environment uh, is going to improve. There is a broad consensus that it's a trend which goes beyond 2021, I think, and that has um, been really reflected in uh, the logic of capital raising. But it's a bit of both, depending on the case, showing some strength, but also highlighting the positive outlook. And in terms of your own strategy, looking to what is going to be, one would expect, a very good year for potential growth next year, what's your own strategy? Would you rather have more top-line growth or would you rather focus on underlying profitability and perhaps keep similar premiums but uh, restrict cover? We, you know, we don't look too much at uh, top line generally as much as we've been growing uh, our top line steadily over the past few years. We really look at underwriting quality and, uh, and for me, earnings growth matters most, which means that we will certainly try to further improve the quality of our book as much as possible, uh, renew it at satisfactory terms, look at the um, underperforming segments and uh, have uh, good discussions with our business partners, correct uh, things whenever needed, and prune parts of the portfolio. So for me, the ideal outcome would be earnings growth in line with our targets, whether um, the premium growth is spectacular or not is not very relevant to me, frankly speaking. So I would focus on quality. That's what drives the performance of our company. That's what will drive the performance of our stock price. Something in your Q3 analyst call recently, highlighting a little bit more aggression perhaps on your part, would be an increased cat appetite. So that was a going up from 16% of Solvency II economic capital to 18% that you're willing to risk on cat events. What's behind that? Presumably, you're much happier with prospective pricing and returns going forward, so you just want more of it. Yeah, there's a bit of that. We see the opportunity. There are some scenarios where we, we are below the potential capacity we're ready to deploy, and uh, we felt it would be a good time to slightly increase. This being said, it's not a massive shift uh, for Hanover. We, we remain very cautious on NatCap. We're not uh, aiming to become a very large NatCap writer, a leader in that space. And we're pretty full in the U.S. Uh, NatCat scenarios, so you should not expect Hanover E to be extremely prominent and grow very fast uh, in the United States in the NatCat segment. Although, in some cases, rate adequacy would be good, but we want to keep the diversification of our book. That's very important. We, we need to manage our aggregates. But generally, there are a number of scenarios where we have room for growth and some appetite. We moved uh, the allocation of capital from 16% to 18% of our economic capital, the Solvency II view, which is a material movement, but not a shift in strategy. So you're not suddenly going crazy and putting it all on red or black? Not at all. You know, as soon as you become uh, amber, you know, it's subject to discussion. One thing that um, people have been discussing a lot over a long period of time and something that you should have a view on, one of the factors behind this market adjustment on the casualty side, particularly, is that strength of industry casualty reserves, particularly in US casualty reserves. What's your gut feel about that? And in terms of your appetite going forward, do you feel that these trends are just going to get worse? Or you think we might got to the rebalancing point and, and a time where you might have an increased appetite? 
You know, it's clear that uh, the, the topic of uh, social inflation, as we say, is not going away anytime soon. This has been uh, actually uh, top of mind for a number of years and um, has been accelerated um, in the United States. In particular, we've been very cautious generally in our policy, but we've seen a number of you know adverse trends, healthcare costs in particular, uh, the opioid crisis, prime example of a potential increasing exposure. We had the, uh, the reopening of old sexual molestation cases is another prime example of what can happen long term in the casualty space. So the trend is continuing and it, it is a trend which uh, requires, of course, um, some adjustment uh, on the primary and on the reinsurance side. And this adds to uh, the burden of low interest rates for the industry. So clearly, you know, for me, the trend will be towards strengthening of reserves for the industry. How much and how fast uh, is difficult to know. We will see after the COVID-19 pandemic if there will be a wave of cases on the, in the long tail lines. Too early to say. But clearly, this continues to be a big burden on the industry. We've uh, been in the fortunate situation at Hanover Re that uh, we reserved um, very, very strongly from the very beginning of inception of treaties. Uh, so we can absorb part of the adverse trends when they occur. So far, so good on our side. But the issue is that our view on rate adequacy and the current market rates are still misaligned. And in order for us to engage in, and grow significantly in U.S. casualty, we would need to see a very material amount of terms. So this is a bit the barrier to grow further for us. But generally, clearly, the social inflation topic, particularly in the U.S., is a great concern to the industry. And, and here again, the price of risk um, is not totally adjusted to the realities. So you're more waiting and seeing and maintaining good relationships, but not increasing appetite? No, we're not increasing appetite. We're, we're trying to maintain consistency in what we do. We, we try to maintain the diversification of our book and support those business partners who are diligent and disciplined in their own pricing. I think a, a lot of the key is in primary terms and conditions, of course. So that's uh, important for us to keep a solid dialogue with our customers but we're not going to have a dramatic uh, shift uh, in terms of capacity in US casualty. Right, Jean-Jacques, we can't be doing a podcast in 2020 without talking about COVID-19. What's your view on how much uncertainty is still in the market? Is it a view that that uncertainty is now diminishing as time has gone, as we work through Q2, Q3, and coming into Q4? Is it reducing, or is there still a material uncertainty you believe out there? I think it's a reducing uh, market, certainly, as uh, we gain more knowledge on um, our customers' exposure. We know now more clearly where they stand in terms of their own wordings and what they imply in terms of um, exposure and business interruption. The event cancellation line of business uh, is also much clearer today than it was uh, a few months ago. You have uncertainty in credit and surety where um, there is a lot of reserves for the case of uh, deterioration of credit conditions, but this has not happened very much so far because there is state support, there's a lot of money uh, pumped into the economy, and uh, this will play out in 2021. So it, it's certainly another driver for further uncertainty in the next year. 
And we still have a few cases, legal cases, which uh, will clarify the, um, the ultimate exposures in business interruption. But I think compared to last spring, where there was total uncertainty on uh, how significant this would be for the industry, that um, that situation is, is different today and led us to, to have more confidence in our own guidance. Uh, we, we had a guidance for um, over 800 million euro net income for 2020, which um, is expected to be um, materialized. And we had a guidance um, for 2021, which was a, a range between um, 1.15 and 1.25 billion euro. And this was also to express the fact that we have more confidence in the ultimate uh, losses that uh, our reserving is robust. So it's, uh, you know, we're not yet done with that uh, pandemic. We still have uh, a few months to go and the uh, range of scenarios um, is still there, but much clearer than half a year ago. What about specifics on terms and conditions going into 1-1? Obviously, we've had this discussion over the year. The first time we were talking about this was uh, with the Japanese or the, the main Asian renewals on the 1st of April. And the issue seems to have been washed away a little bit. Is now 1-1, is this the really the crunch time where you say to your cedents, sorry, COVID-19 is no longer covered under this treaty? What is your strategy? How do you go about this? Or is it just different depending on which cedent you've got because you know what they've got underlying? I think the priority this year, um, Mark, was really to talk to our clients about their own wordings. I think the first line of defense is to make sure that the primary wordings are clarified and uh, all our business partners have been very active on that front and, and already in the spring, the renewal of um, policies in the primary business have been adjusted. So there is an increasing clarity in the primary wordings. And then, of course, uh, we agreed uh, on the fact that uh, reinsurance coverage could not fully include pandemics going forward. So that's one of the objectives. It's not controversial. I think what is important for our customers is to determine how to handle the remaining exposure until all the policies have been renewed. And we're trying to have an open discussion about that. But the COVID pandemic exposure in uh, ENC treaties is going to diminish dramatically uh, on one one. That's an objective for us. And that's because um, this was never intended to be part of the coverage. The, the issue this year has been the lack of clarity on wordings and not the fact that um, COVID was uh, included or, or excluded. It, it was just... Um, too much of a gray area in some instances and subject to discussion. Now we want to have clarity on the intent. So the wordings need to be written in a clearer way. So that's not a change, if you want, in terms of intent. It's just a clarification. To be clear, going forward, you're likely to be asking for a specific pandemic exclusion on treaties going forward. That's um, the objective, and uh, we were implementing that. And our customers fully understand. I mean, they are doing the same on their side. And that's the most important um, part. So the only question is really on that 2020, 2019, 2020 year claim situation of what you do with those claims. And there, I presume you're going to be wherever possible following the fortunes of those students. Yeah, I mean, for, for all the proportional uh, coverage, uh, that, you know, you have a follow the fortune clause or philosophy. So clearly there is a mechanism in place to make sure that we're well aligned. For no proportion, it's a bit more complicated, as you know, and uh, the wordings are different. 
and require some discussions. In most cases, I think we were able to align with our customers, but, uh, but there are still good discussions going on. And the legal clarity is a prerequisite, of course. There are some geographies, in particular in Europe, where we need to better understand the, the ramifications from a legal standpoint. But overall, I think we've made good progress, I would say. And in terms of, I suppose, what we've been talking about now has been mostly the first party, the business interruption, credit, event cancellation, that kind of stuff. What's your feel about COVID as a casualty loss, as a third party loss, as a liability loss for insureds around the world, and what that might end up becoming? And what sort of numbers are you trying to put on that? Because it's the sort of thing that the claims manager will be putting a big nil precautionary with a very big question mark beside it. And I don't know how much of your billion 1.15, 1.25 next year, how much of that is third party? No, I think that's a big unknown. Uh, clearly, we've reserved already for um, some of the long tail lines. Uh, but these were, of course, uh, bulk reserves uh, this year, because they are related to effective losses, which were reported uh, by our clients. And um, we have to base our judgment on past experience. It's difficult because this is a unique crisis, of course, with different characteristics from uh, what we've seen in the past. But clearly, the situation related to the lockdown in particular may give uh, rise to some cases of disagreement. It may impact lines like DNO in particular going forward. I still believe in the end, this will not be a huge liability crisis. COVID for me will remain very much focused on these lines of business affected already today. So business interruption in property, insurance, event cancellation. But clearly in the coming year, you're going to see some legal cases, some legal challenges, which may impact long tail business as well. So we'll see how it goes. We've reserved uh, based on scenarios rather than reality because we don't have any evidence at this stage of COVID-related claims in long-tail treaties. But this might be a subject in 21. Big part of Hanover Re's strategy in the last few years has been that pursuit of specialty insurance alongside reinsurance. What's your assessment of that strategy? Obviously, you made the acquisition in Argenta and Lloyd's. Does that have further to run, particularly now that we've got the wind in your sails on a much harder market in that segment? Yes, I think on that front, uh, we're very happy with the timing. As you know, we, um, we made a, an important decision a couple of years ago on the specialty insurance sector by selling Intel over to uh, HDI. Um, and we are now a minority shareholder of uh, HDI Global Specialty. And this is um, certainly a venture of great interest to us. It has allowed us to stick to our positioning as a reinsurer and not a direct insurer and allowed uh, HDI Global Specialty to create scale. They've been growing uh, successfully. They've been adding competences to their team and I've been very impressed by uh, by progress made. They will... um, produce results which are better than the market uh, in 2020 in spite of the COVID um, issues. And I um, I would expect the profitability to improve in the next few years. So, so the timing is very good. And uh, I hope it will bring um, some additional earnings for Hanover Re. And Argenta is also a good way for us to, to create optionality. And I hope with the discipline of the Lloyd's market and uh, the rigor which is needed to improve underwriting performance that we will also be able to harvest from a hard market trend. So specialty very much part 
of what we want to do. Adding to that, of course, we have our traditional reinsurance activities where we have a leading position in many treaties in the London market in particular. So specialty is part of our priorities going forward and uh, the cycle is positive. And so do you see Lloyd still as an attractive platform for growth, even for such a large business as as Hanover, you can still be a meaningful part of your growth strategy? Yes, I think so. So far, uh, clearly, you know, we share the concerns uh, on the cost of doing business at Lloyd's and we fully support the blueprints which have been issued in the past uh, year or so. I think Lloyd's has, uh, has a great franchise and a good outlook, but it's an implementation challenge. And um, I'd hope that they can execute um, as planned. If so, there is a growth opportunity. It's certainly an interest from uh, Hanover Reed to keep a strong link as a part of the market. Uh, and the Argenta franchise is a, is a good way for us to do so. Hanover Reed's invested in different insurtechs and been involved in collaborating with insurtechs. We've had some interesting a kind of watershed moment for InsureTech, a maturity moment with IPOs from Lemonade and Root. What's your strategy regarding InsureTech? We're following that uh, very carefully, of course. Uh, reinsurers are always trying to keep track of movements in the primary space. And this is a trend which is clear. And the, these IPOs uh, have been a, a proof of concept, so to say, for these players. A lot of the valuation, of course, uh, is linked to future earnings. So there is still a way to go until this is confirmed in, uh, in an established uh, track record. But this has been an impressive few examples uh, in the market showing that consumer trends do lead to digital models. We're um, generally not so keen on uh, acting as a private equity player in that space. Uh, There are some exceptions, but generally our sense is that we can help in a much more effective manner as a reinsurer. So we, we are willing to help and support some of these ventures, and we do so already today as a reinsurer, which does not only include capacity, but also ideas, exchange on product development, on expansion of the model. So it's a very fruitful dialogue with some of these players. But I don't think as a reinsurance company, our added value lies in investors' perspectives. We try to have a reinsurance angle to it. What I should stress is, of course, that many incumbents in the primary space have uh, very uh, significant um, programs to digitize their own processes, but also to um, embrace the digital channel and um, focus more on product uh, innovation. And this should not be underestimated. Uh, In in a way, these uh, insurtech are not only successful on their own, but they are also creating momentum a competitive landscape uh, where innovation becomes key to success. And uh, this is very interesting to us. And we also want to work with our traditional clients going forward on their own uh, digital value proposition. That's part of the strategy and we continue to do so. We've had some big consolidation on the broking side, a big part of your distribution. We've had obviously MMC JLT, and now we have the proposed merger of Aon and Willis. How's that going to affect your business? Does it worry you that what would have been four reasonably sized brokers or certainly three very big brokers would go down to two? Yeah, you know, generally large scale consolidation in the brokerage industry is never good news for players in the market, in particular uh, 
for Hanover Re as a broker-focused um, reinsurer. So less choice is always a negative in such uh, consolidation moves. On the other hand, you know, I think this is not the end of competition. There will still be um, players with a significant size and uh, competition is also good in that space that creates a drive to innovate. And I feel that one of the positive of some of these um, mergers are that the business models are geared towards analytics and um, new ideas and pushing the boundaries of uh, insurability. So this may create a, a wave of um, innovation as well. And this is a positive for us because we have so many good uh, working relationships with the brokers. It's also true that given the synergies which occurred uh, necessarily in, in such uh, mergers, there will be um, brokers and teams of brokers opening new ventures. So there'll be a new wave probably of uh, brokerage firms being established in, in 21 and beyond. So uh, I don't feel that consolidation is the only trend. I think there's also uh, always um, new ideas coming into the system which creates diversity. So it's a bit of a, you know, both threat and opportunity for us. Less choice on the one hand side, but also uh, new ideas flourishing and um, competition remaining uh, actively um, part of the game. So I'm not um, all in all overly concerned about it. So if you were the one of the competition regulators uh, in one of the markets that are overseeing the deal, you'd, would you just wave it through? You'd be not too worried about competitive aspect of it. You know, I think this is a case-by-case -case discussion. Cle clearly, many regulators are involved in the process until um, that merger is, um, is completed. So I think in the end, it may be a different answer in the different markets. But generally, I, I don't believe in a market which continues to grow where we have a huge protection gap and a need to innovate that the prime concern uh, is lack of competition. I don't think so. Jean-Jacques, thank you so much for giving me your time. It's a very busy time of year as always. So thank you so much. I wish you every success. Have a really good renewal. Have a great 2021 and come back and talk to us very soon. Thank you very much, Mark. A very a great pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan, in association with Advantage Go, enabling underwriters to increase the speed and accuracy of decision-making. Original music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.